Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the United States today, just 29 states in the District of Columbia mandate sex education in schools. However, only 18 states require that when this information is taught, it must be medically accurate. And just nine states require sex ed to be culturally appropriate and unbiased. What this means is that there are really surprisingly few places in this country where students have access to sex ed that's actually going to give them useful information that is designed to meet their needs. We clearly need better sex ed, but we also need more equitable sex ed that doesn't leave racial and ethnic minorities, LGBTQ youth, and persons with disabilities on the sidelines. So how can we make sex education work for everyone? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I am joined by Dr. Tanya Bass, an award-winning sexuality educator who teaches at North Carolina Central University's Department of Public Health Education. She also founded the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference. We're going to talk all about sex ed and also how sex is depicted in the media, the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly of it all. We're going to jump in momentarily, but before we do, if you're like me, you probably never received the sex education that you wanted or deserved growing up but it's never too late to learn. If you're looking to expand your sexual knowledge and skills, check out Beducated. Beducated is like Netflix for better sex. They have a series of online courses featuring more than 100 hours of content that can give you a boost in the bedroom. One of my favorite courses is the one that's all about women's pleasure. This course is ideal for women or anyone who loves women. Some of the topics covered include how to awaken pleasure and explore your body, as well as techniques you can try with a partner. These courses are designed to inspire intimacy and build sexual confidence. You can try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, and I know you will, you can get 70% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. It's just $7.99 per month, and this discount is locked in forever. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. All right, let's talk sex education. Hello, Dr. Bass, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, Dr. Lemuller. Uh, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been following your work for a long time, and it was such a pleasure to meet you in person last year in Puerto Rico. We were there for a sex research conference and bumped elbows at an event where we were both being honored for the same award. Specifically, we were both named Distinguished Sexual and Gender Health Revolutionaries by the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health at the University of Minnesota. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Such an honor and such an honor to be alongside you and so many other great, awesome uh, sexuality professionals. So to kick off our conversation, can you please tell us a little bit about your professional backstory? So specifically, what led you to become a sex educator in the first place? I was a young adolescent. I actually moved from Brooklyn, New York, which is what I always claim is my hometown, to rural North Carolina. And in high school, of course, starting to think about what are you going to do when you graduate? And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to college, become a nurse. And then I attended North Carolina Central University which is where I'm teaching now. It's my alma mater. I started down the nursing path. It was not what I had hoped it would be. And so I decided to change my major to public health. And that's really how everything started. I fell in love with public health theory. I wanted to be a disease intervention specialist. And kind of like the rest is history. I've loved every minute of it. 
And how long have you been in the field and practicing in the world of sex education? Yeah, I think it's been 25 years. So my first job was actually at, then it was called the American Social Health Association, but ASHA, the American Sexual Health Association, which is one of our longest sexual health organizations. Pre the internet, we had hotlines and I worked at the National STD Hotline, which was run by the Centers for Disease Control in Durham, North Carolina. That was like my first job. And I thought I knew about STDs and STIs and sex. And I had to read so many things. Like I literally had nightmares about different things because they were just like dumping the information into us so we could help to folks who would call in. I discussed the pretty poor state of sex education in the U.S. today. And I've gone into more detail on some of these problems in previous episodes of the show, including episode 46 with Dr. Kristen Mark. But one of the issues I don't think we've really given quite enough attention to yet is the issue of equity in sex education. Most of the people who are establishing these sex ed requirements for students are white, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied adults, right? So can you talk a little bit about who's being left out of sex education today and what this means for their sexual health? Totally. I mean, working in, and being a graduate of a historic college university, I think people of color specifically are being left out. I think folks with intellectual, developmental, or physical uh, limitations and disabilities are being left out. I definitely think that larger-bodied or fat people are being left out. And sadly, even though I feel like there's more conversations, but even in the textbooks, I feel like seniors and older adults are being left out, especially also folks with English isn't their first language or, you know, they may not be U.S. citizens, but living in the U.S. I think all of those are definitely individuals who are being left out. So there are lots of groups, lots of individuals who aren't even really considered when people are creating these curricula. And so that can be a problem, right? So what are the implications when you're taking, say, a sex ed course, but it doesn't address your needs at all? You know, how does that impact someone's sexual health? Why is this really important for us to pay attention to? I honestly think it's so important because people want to be seen and in some ways validated and that know that people understand who they are. I can think of two semesters just even talking about queerness and, you know, diversity in the way we express ourselves sexually. One student was able to come out to her mom after taking my class. I remember last year near the end of the semester, a student called, I felt like in crisis because of challenges with their family dynamic and their identity. And it was really weighing on their mental health and ability to enjoy what I consider some of their best years of their lives. And so what that student said to me last semester was that my class actually highlighted the fact that you can be different or, you know, like there's not one way to be a sexual being. And that is what caused their kind of like crisis internally to fully live in their authentic selves and be able to share that with their family or at least consider sharing that with their family. No other class, whether it was in high school or even on our campus, had allowed that. Yeah. And I think what you say 
highlights why sex education for everyone is so important. Yes, on the one hand, you're giving them the tools and skills they need to potentially prevent unintended pregnancy or STIs, but you're also giving them a chance to explore and understand their own sexuality, to put a language to things, to increase their own self-understanding, to build up their sexual self-confidence, right? And there's a lot of research showing that there are immense benefits of taking human sexuality courses in colleges. And we also know that in adolescents who receive comprehensive sex education, that their outcomes tend to be better across the board, right? And so this speaks to, you know, just the importance of sex ed in general. But I think as sex educators, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that the people who might be coming to our classes might be coming from very different backgrounds and have very different levels of knowledge and have unique needs. And the story that you told reminded me of an experience I had when I was a sex educator at Harvard. And Harvard's student body is diverse in several ways, one of which is that they have a lot of international students. And I remember distinctly one semester having this female student come up to me after one of my lectures, and she was an international student from China. And she said that when she got on the plane to come to the United States to go to Harvard, she said her mom told her, don't get pregnant. And she said, I didn't know what that meant because we had never had any sex ed. I didn't know how to prevent pregnancy, right? And so having my course, right, I had to go in and approach things very comprehensively. Like I I think about this when I design my courses, like I have a lot of students who are like, why are we talking about sexual anatomy? Everybody knows what a penis and a clitoris is. And I'm like, no, they don't. don't. You have to understand everybody's coming from a different background. You got to cover the basics and you've got to assume that, you know, not everybody is starting from the same knowledge base. They have different needs. And that's just why it's so important to have this inclusivity in sex education. Now, one of the problems that I've seen in sex ed is that there is this lack of representation of minority groups. For example, in photos and textbooks, you might only see white bodies, or they might only depict male-female relationships. And I have my own human sexuality textbook, and I've tried really hard to show diversity in it. And a lot of people don't realize this, but I actually have to hand select every single photo that goes into my textbook. And so with each one, I'm very cognizant of diversity, but it's a lot harder than you might think to show this because the available pool of photos to choose from on stock photo websites isn't very diverse. So even when you intentionally want to show diversity, you sometimes run into these roadblocks because the photos you want aren't always available. So with that said, can you speak to the importance of just basic representation in sex ed and how representation in and of itself can help make sex ed more accessible? Oh, not only does it make sex ed more accessible, but I think it helps deconstruct stereotypes and stigma. So I I, I came into the profession through a public health lens. And so I remember getting these stack of cards with STDs on genitalia and most of the photos were of people of color. Like, you know, the depiction of warts, depiction of herpes, discharge from gonorrhea, all the things. And all those pictures were of people of color primarily. And then you go to a textbook and you see when you're talking about reproduction and helping to teach the anatomy, you don't have, you know, that diversity and that representation. And so it almost like reinforces that idea of like what's good and what's bad. And so it's really unfortunate 
And just last night, actually, we had the conversation. So it's funny you bring this up because that's the the chapters we're covering in my class at NCCU is looking at anatomy and having a conversation about like, where have you seen pictures and what does the vulva look like or looking at a range of all different body parts and being able to access fully body parts that may look like yours, not to compare, but just to see in, in the textbook that I use, I often add, like my slides are not the the typical slides that come with your, your textbook. I really doctor those up to really speak to my class and my worldview and try to encourage the students to offer up their perspectives as well. And I think last night the conversation was around ensuring that we don't look at photos that are available to us to seek the affirmation or try to compare or, you know, use that as a guide of what our genitalia is supposed to look like or what healthy is supposed to look like. And I even encourage my students to look at their genitalia too, to like, you know, not to compare, but just to be aware of their own body and how wonderful it is. And I think that's important we talk about it in terms of body self-esteem in relation to like fat phobia or overall self-esteem, like when we're looking at social media. That same holds true with whatever slides and photos are in your book or in your classroom. You want people to feel um, seen and represented as well and in a positive way, not just those CDC, you know, symptom cards. We want to be depicted as healthy beings as well. Yeah, you make so many important points. And I think the point about avoiding the comparisons is a really good one, especially if you're talking about comparing yourself to what you might see in pornography, because, you know, sometimes that can give misleading ideas of mm -hmm. what a body is supposed to look like. And there's so much diversity in genital appearance. And odds are, you know, you're normal. <laughs> but if you're using this comparison point of pornography is a reference, you know, that can lead you to easily feel like there's something wrong when in reality there isn't. And so we really need to better understand our own bodies. And I think it's important to look at your genitals, not just when you're experiencing problems with them, but just to understand what the baseline is. Because I think so many people kind of avoid looking at them and think of them as private parts. And so then they only look occasionally or when there's a problem and then, you know, they don't have that baseline because, you know, maybe that, you know, little dot or whatever was always there, but you've never really looked before. Right. And so sometimes it creates that unnecessary anxiety. And I think you also raise a really good point about the ways in which certain photographs are depicted in a lot of sexuality education materials where you might only see racial minorities in that negative context where STDs are present, but in the comparison condition, you know, it, it might only be white bodies. And, and that's a problem. You know, it sends this message very overtly to people that reinforces negative sexual stereotypes. And so there are all kinds of problems with the ways in which sex education is often taught because that representation just isn't always present. So how can we make that representation better, right? I, I think this is an important and timely issue because there was a big discussion about this on social media recently because someone had drawn an image of an African-American woman who is pregnant showing what's inside the body because almost every image that you see is of a white woman, right? And People were just like overjoyed that 
you know, finally there was this anatomic representation that featured a black or brown body. And so I think part of it is just like these basic things, like it's lack of availability is one of the issues. So how do we fix this? How can we do better with representation? That image, I remember seeing the baby, the pregnant woman, and then getting all these text messages and tags and people really were celebrating it because it's kind of like, isn't it time? And we have to almost advocate for ourselves. I think me adding that to my class PowerPoints is one thing, but also advocating to publishers, you know, to be more thorough in trying to ensure that authors have the representation as well as appropriate, when appropriate as possible. And I think that's fair. And then I also think that we have individuals such as the illustrator there. Like I know that's not his main job. I think he's a medical student or a doctor, but there are other sexually educators that I know that are not only looking at drawings, but looking at illustrations that include black and brown bodies and a range of diversity in the photos or the, you know, the illustrations that they use. And that that's pretty amazing too. We just need to adopt it and, and spread the word about it and hold each other accountable. I've been sent someone else's PowerPoint as a, a reference point to teach something. And then I looked at it and then I was like, wow, you want me to use this at my school? Interesting. And it was just not representative of the world, not even my school, but of the world. It was clearly through the worldview of this instructor and perhaps the majority audience at their school. But you want me now to pilot test this at my school. And I was like, I can't do it. We have to sit down and talk about ways to make this more culturally appropriate for a different audience. And I say a different audience. It's just the world. Like everyone should be able to see themselves somehow in your presentations when appropriate. It, you know, it should be very inclusive. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there is a lot of value in what it sounded like you were suggesting, which is kind of getting an outside perspective and doing some peer review, right, with your own materials. Because sometimes, you know, you might have tried to make an effort to, to represent diversity, but maybe it could go a little bit farther. And so asking others to review your materials can be helpful. Also, if you're really struggling to find photos, just Put out a social media post, ask your colleagues, because they might have other resources that they can connect you with that can make the educational experience better for your students. Mm -hmm. I think another way that we don't always have representation in human sexuality courses is that there tends to be so much focus on the older white men in particular who have contributed to the field, right? We talk a lot about Alfred Kinsey and William Masters and Virginia Johnson, and certainly these people made very valuable contributions to the field, but we don't always talk about the contributions of persons of color. And so one person who comes to mind is June Dobbs Butts, who recently passed, who was a very important African-American sexuality educator in the United States, but she's not included in a lot of textbooks. And so it's one of those things where sometimes you don't know about the contributions of diverse communities to this field because they're just not talked about. Absolutely. Like, I honestly didn't learn about Dr. Butts until I want to say it was either six or seven years ago. And then I tried to find every article, even the Essence articles, Essence magazine articles that she had written or contributed to because it was so exciting. And, you know, for me, I think I was holding on to Dr. Jocelyn Elders because 
I don't know. Once I got into public health, somehow I thought I'd be Surgeon General one day. And I thought that was that would be exciting until I realized what all that meant. But, you know, I, I just was so enamored by her. I felt like she was such a great role model. And then I had another person to actually look to. And then I was thinking about like Dr. Gail Wyatt, a lot of people, you know, from especially from the prevention side, but overall with sexuality, speaking of, you know, female sexuality, definitely, you know, people to know. I work in North Carolina. I've been here, oh God, several years now, but my whole professional career is in North Carolina and we do evidence-based interventions. And I just think about Loretta Jamat having input in some of these evidence-based curricula that were written with some of our other colleagues, but how many people would know or recognize Loretta? So there's so many people that we could probably list and name that go unsung and we need to say their names and lift up their accomplishments. And I definitely fan out <laughs> sexuality professionals and scholars more so than I do rock stars or seniors or actors. <laughs> and so it just really excites me to have those conversations. I was like, I'm on the phone with Dr. Loretta Jamat right now. Like, <laughs> it's so exciting. I was so excited a couple of years ago at a conference where Dr. Jocelyn Elders, the former U.S. Surgeon General, was giving a keynote talk and got to meet her and take a photo with her later because she's one of my heroes in the field. Yeah. You know, she's someone who was Surgeon General in the 1990s. She's an African-American woman, and she advocated for the importance of teaching masturbation, right, and normalizing mm -hmm. it and suggested that maybe we should be talking about it in sex ed. And she lost her job because of it, right? Yeah. She was fired just for talking about masturbation being healthy, which is crazy, you know, that this was only 25 or so years ago that that happened. And so she's another one of these really important figures. And I think you're absolutely right. We need to do so much more to name and celebrate the diverse group of folks who have contributed to the fields of sex research and education. And I think to your point, like, I think there are so many other people, like, between Dr. Elders and Dr. Satcher, like, I really get excited about their work and how they progress the conversations around sex and sexuality. But it also just shows me, like, how slow progress is and, like, even how Massajiwar shows up. Like, here, Dr. Elders lost her job. But right after her, we have a whole statement from the Surgeon General about sex. And although, you know, Dr. Satcher is a Black male, it almost made me feel like, so did it need the males, you know, approach? What is it more acceptable with having conversations around sex from a male perspective? Like, what is that about? Still grateful for those efforts, but it just may, gives you some pause and, you know, you want to think about those things. Absolutely. And that's why the intersection between gender and race and sexuality, all of these mm -hmm. different things matter. And you can't just look at one factor in isolation because they certainly all come together in important ways. Now, another problem in sex ed is that things like race are sometimes discussed as risk factors. But race itself isn't the risk factor, right? It's the broader societal and systematic things that disproportionately affect communities of color that are the risk factors. And when we overlook that and start saying that race itself is a risk factor for STDs or something like that, that can come across as really judgmental, to say the least. So can you speak to the importance of language in sex education and how we can do a better job communicating this material to diverse communities? Yes, we have to do a better job. I remember when I first started teaching and we were talking about health disparities and looking across 
you know, including sexual transmitted diseases and chronic disease. And I remember one of my students and I was like, oh, I've got it. I'm, I'm doing this wrong. My student said, man, we get everything. We die from everything. And I was like, wait, I need to back up on these stats because statistics are fact, but you have to give some context to data and you have to give some context to like what's actually happening. So race has never been a risk factor. Racism, oppression is definitely a risk factor and a cause for the the different disparities that we see. But I think it also is important to think about how access to care, not addressing the social determinants of health, including trust as a determinant of health, it has implications for health outcomes. And so it's also our behaviors and communication and that we don't put a, a little red flag or something on someone because of their race. Race should never be a predictor of someone's health outcome, educational outcome, any outcome. And, and unfortunately, the way we've been gathering data and the way we present data has reinforced the idea that your race, your identity, is the risk factor associated with whatever sexual health problem or even overall health problem. And that's just not fair. I think what we have to do is really look at, you know, some of the commonalities around the barriers to health, the barriers to communication, the barriers to education, and really look at how I always think back on my own childhood and how it made me think and act as I did, as it related to my own sexuality. Everyone has that story, that backstory. We're doing a lot of undoing when we're teaching sexuality education and we allow individuals that we teach to tap into their past history and why they think, believe, or act in the ways in which they do. And not to even say those things are wrong, but to say maybe there is a different way and maybe there, I don't want to use the word safer, but a less, I don't want to say less risky either. I think just maybe a more health uh, way to do it in the sense of not putting yourself or anyone else at risk. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said and I agree with all of it. So what can all of us do to promote better, more equitable sex education overall? So whether you're a parent or a sex educator or someone who just wants to contribute to the cause, what are some practical steps we can take? Man, that's a good question. I, I really think, that, like I always say, the biggest step could be like getting out of the boxes. Like we want everything to fit into a nice label and a nice box and we either get fearful or angry when things don't fit in those boxes. And we have to just start thinking outside of ourselves, decentering ourselves and our own experiences that knowing what you said earlier, that people have different experiences and we have to teach to that. I think also, like I was saying in my class, I think we have to read more. I'm still learning about my own identity and culture. It's like well, definitely a lifelong process, but I also want to learn more about other cultures, other practices, and it will help me be able to share that as I learn. If I'm an educator, like a sexuality educator, or a teacher, or even a therapist, I, I think it's my responsibility to gain more in, as much information as possible, whether it's professional development at conferences or reading on my own and, and taking stock to the new knowledge that I have. Yeah, and I think that's so important 
about stepping out of the boxes and considering different perspectives. This is what I really try to do in my courses is to say, here's a lot of different ways of thinking about this yeah. issue. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how to think. I want you to evaluate the different arguments and come to your own conclusions. Like my job is, as an educator is not to tell you how to think other than to think critically and consider different perspectives. And, you know, one of the issues that I often bring up in my class is we talk about male circumcision and how in the United States, it's largely accepted. You know, most male mm -hmm. infants are circumcised shortly, you know, after birth. And it's just like considered to be not a big deal. But then there are people from other cultures who look at this and think that it's an abhorrent practice, right? And so we need to think about our own cultural ways that we approach sex and how it's different around the world. And, you know, it, when you start thinking about it this way, you realize it's so much more complex than you ever yes. thought that it was. And I think that when you think about it outside of your own learn context that you are able to see a different perspective, whether you agree with it, whether you practice it or not, to appreciate someone else's lived experience. Now, we have much more to discuss, including the good, bad, and ugly of how sex is represented in the media. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASEC sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at permescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. So we've been talking a lot about school-based sex education and how to make it better and more equitable. Now, of course, school isn't the only place that people learn about sex. Another big source is the media. And in the absence of formal sex ed, the media and also pornography can start to play a pretty big role in how we come to think about sex. So let's talk about how this can be both good and bad. Now, Tanya, let me first ask you to share some examples of sex in the media that you think are bad, perhaps because they feed into inaccurate stereotypes or they just don't represent healthy portrayals of sex. When I think about sometimes sex in the media, I think about like some movies and uh, cringy, but I'm not a fan of Fifty Shades of Grey and I know a lot of people are, but like, I just don't think that that's a great depiction of sex and sexuality in the media, I think it's highly entertaining for a lot of people. But, you know, not going to yuck anybody's yum. That's one area. And then I have mixed feelings because I am a hip-hop fan, but I have some still challenges 
with music videos that may depict the sexualization and adultification, specifically of young black and brown women and young girls. And so I, I am challenged with that. And even some of the colorist undertones in some of the, the music videos and even fat phobia. So for me, there's like this love hate. Like I love to pull out things that I think we can learn from and discuss, which I think we can do that with all, all of it. But then I hate the areas that provide misinformation or exhibit misinformation or not a full story or continue to stigmatize or prejudices or something like that, or fetishizing of, of different bodies. Those are the things that I really don't like. Yeah. And when I was thinking about this question before the show today, Fifty Shades of Grey is one of the things that came to mind for me. And like you, I realized, hey, a lot of people like it. And I think it helped to kind of create more awareness of BDSM and more openness to exploring it. You know, I have seen some reports that sex toy sales for BDSM products increased, you know, kind of at the peak of Fifty Shades popularity. So, you know, there, there may have been ways that that opened and facilitated conversations, but people have to realize that's not a how-to guide to kinky sex. Right. And it doesn't do a good job of really depicting things like consent and safety practices and all of that important stuff. And in terms of other media portrayals that I'm not particularly fond of, you know, there's this show on Netflix called Insatiable. I've talked about it before on the podcast. Mm. It's problematic in a lot of ways. <laughs> we could do a whole show about that. But one of them is its portrayal or depiction of bisexuality as sort of this kind of temporary stop, you know, on the way to becoming gay. And, you know, the original Sex in the City series did the same thing, you know, where Carrie Bradshaw famously said, being bisexual is just a layover on the way to gay town, right? So, you know, I don't like media that sort of reinforces those negative stereotypes about people's sexuality. And then also, you know, another one that comes to mind for me is Game of Thrones, right? In season four, there was that sex scene between Jamie and Cersei where there was no explicit consent and it was sort of feeding into the no means yes trope that we often see depicted in, in media sex scenes. And, you know, freely it depicts a sexual assault, right? Because there was not consent present. So, right. you know, there are all kinds of examples we can point to where it's like, you know, maybe that's not the best or healthiest portrayal of sex. Oh, yeah. You bring up so many, like, the conversations I have about, and I know Black America, don't come for me, but, like, Tyler Perry, like, so many of his shows, I'm just like, what's happening? Like, can we, I, I, if, if you're listening, Tyler, call us. We're here to help because there's so many things that get depicted on. I can pick a number of his shows and I'm like, oh, this is so problematic as it relates to consent, as it relates to negative stereotypes about kink and BDSM, about, you know, uh, same gender loving couples or any of it. It's just so problematic at times, but the goal is to entertain, right? And people are watching. And then we had this conversation about one of the most popular shows, which was Bridgerton and talking about consent and one of the scenes in which the dude didn't consent to, or, you know, it also, like, when I think about Bridgerton, like, there's so many layers to that one, getting to that yep. one scene around even knowing your body and being taught about sexuality. But then a lot of people really focus on that scene as not really talking about consent as well. 
Yeah. And consent is really one of those big issues where I think there's a lot of problems in media portrayals of it. And, you know, we could go on and on about the (laughs) more problematic, bad side of things, but let's talk about the good, you know, because it's not all bad. So what are some portrayals of sex on TV or in books or movies that you like, you know, who's getting it right? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about like, so when I think about sex, it's just not even like the act, it's like the conversations that families are having. And this is what really shocked me when I sat down and think about it. I was like, how did I see this show? And I'm going to, I'm going to go back and bring it forward. But Maude is one of my favorite shows. I don't know. People may know the character B. Arthur from the Golden Girls, but before all of that, there was this show called Maude. And I realized that it started the year I was born. However, in Syndicate, I started seeing Maud. My my family watched Maud. And I remember knowing concepts around abortion, but I didn't have language. No one sat down and talked to me about it. But I, I remember it intensely watching the show, liking the show, but learning something and not realizing what I was learning until later. So I think that conversation in and of itself about a woman's bodily autonomy, even in that time, was so important and can be important even today. Like I could go back and pull out that that clip or that episode and it would be important. Fast forwarding up, I love good times. I know like I know people have feelings about Norman Lear, but I think Norman had some great opportunities to highlight topics that people weren't talking about. And there's one episode on Good Times, I think it's called Sex and the Evans Family. That's the name of the family. And the, so the family is like three kids, the the junior JJ is the oldest, Delma is the middle child, only daughter. And then Michael Evans is like the young, rambunctious young son who's definitely an advocate out there marching for all the causes. But while cleaning up, the mom or the dad finds an entitled sex in the ghetto. And because they thought, you know, it might have been the older sons, it was like, oh, well, it's fine. You know, it's his. And then it's like, it's not his. And they thought maybe it was the younger sons. It was like, well... He's too young, but it's fine. But when I realized it was the daughters and thinking about the double standard that already exists in her um, ability to navigate her relationships and her sexuality compared to the sons, I was like, so they depicted this, but it allowed us to have a conversation. And in the episode, again, to have conversations about sexuality, double standards, et cetera, and even talk about sexuality aspects of what happens in possibly inner city black families and what was going on. Like that to me was one of the big episodes for sure. And then I think some other shows that are getting it right, but in a more comical way is on Netflix. Like a lot of people have feels about sex education. I really enjoy it as a sexuality educator. I don't know. Like, I feel like what's the average person? I don't know because I don't know too many average people that actually (laughs) watch it, but I've never had like, all the people that I'm around are primarily sexuality professionals when we do talk about it. And people love to pull out, you know, things that can be teachable moments, especially this last season where we're talking about sexual identity and gender identity. So many teachable moments there to share among families. And you can send those clips out. Like I can go on and on on so many things. That, like I said, I came in the prevention world into sexuality and I was just thinking about like girlfriends, the golden girl. I think even Will and Grace had a couple of episodes that talked about sexually transmitted infections as well as 
HIV transmission and testing. So I I can't say, oh, these shows, that's their intention to be a resource for sex education and conversations, but they have become a resource for sexuality education and discussions and information. So I really, I love that about the way our media is going. Yeah. And, you know, that's something where I've been thinking a lot about this lately because I'm working on revisions for the next edition of my textbook. And I have a lot in there on sex and the media. And part of what I do is sort of trace the history of how sex and gender have been represented in the media and how there have been these groundbreaking moments. Like if, you know, one of them that I think of is when I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of reruns on Nick at Night with my mom, and we would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show <laughs> and, and and Dick Van Dyke. And I remember my mom telling me how, you know, the first time she ever saw a woman on TV wearing pants was Mary Tyler Moore. And like, she realized like, women can wear pants, right? And I think that speaks to like the importance and power that media can have over us because sometimes it shows us a different way of being or a different perspective. And, you know, people today might look at a woman wearing pants. How was that revolutionary? Well, you have to think about it in the context of the time in which it happened. Or if you look at a show like The Jeffersons, which was really the first show to depict an interracial couple on TV, or Murphy Brown, where it was really the first time you had a single woman who was pregnant who was going to raise mm -hmm. a kid on her own, right? These were all groundbreaking, revolutionary moments in the history of television that certainly had an influence on the broader culture around us. And, you know, the Golden Girls is another good example. I love me some B. Arthur, right? And so, you know, the way that it sort of normalized older women's sexuality had never really seen that before represented exactly. in the media. And, you know, when we think about some of these, you know, older portrayals, I think people often have a tendency to focus on the bad elements of it and not recognize like the cultural significance and importance, like Will and Grace, for example. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it was an important show in a lot of ways. But, you know, the portrayal of, say, someone like Jack McFarlane was pretty stereotypical of mm -hmm. gay men, right? Another example would be the 1990s film The Birdcage, right? Which is another very stereotypical representation of gay men. Now, I can look at that and I can recognize like, hey, you know, these were stereotypical portrayals, but these media depictions also did good things. Like, for example, right. my parents, you know, I, I wouldn't say that like they were always like super open and accepting of homosexuality, but they saw the birdcage because Robin Williams was in it. They loved him. And then after that, like my dad loved drag queens. And it's like, you know, it sort of normalized like sexual diversity for him in a way that, you know, kind of like opened the groundwork for them to really change their their worldview. So I think these media portrayals, even if they do have some problematic elements, can also still change the narrative. So we have to, you know, consider all of that together. I think that's what we have to embrace in that it's an aspect of our socialization. Because, you know, some people may not have had a friend who might have come out as gay or queer, you know, and then you see this on TV and it might help in that socialization process for individuals. And then it's even maybe even bigger than that. Like one of the things that I think about not only with Will and Grace in terms of queer community, but also friendships, like navigating healthy relationships and commitments and friendships and what that looks like for different people in different ways like like that friendship between Will and Grace but not only Will and Grace but Karen and Jack like all four of them collectively and I think there's a lesson to learn about navigating communication in all relationships. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to sex in the media, do you think it's changing, right? So are we making progress? Is it getting better overall? What's your your sort of sense of how this has evolved over time? In some ways, I feel like we're making progress because there are topics and more factual information. It feels like people are trying to do their research when they're not just trying to entertain and, and to be correct. I think also, though, people are or companies are looking for clicks and likes and viewership. So if the more salacious it can be, it feels like it doesn't matter if it's factual as long as people are enticed by what's happening on the screen or, you know, if it's on your phone or wherever. And so it's a thin line that we have to play. I know each time, like even with sex education on Netflix and some of the other shows, some of the sexuality educators of a color are like, please hire us, ask our opinion. You know, like we could offer some different things and maybe people are listening because I feel like some of the storylines have been more complex. I, I go back again to sex education on Netflix and thinking about sexual identity, but also from a perspective, even though I know it's not the U.S. culture per se, but just thinking about Jax and the relationship and navigating their attraction to someone who was gender gender non-conforming and what that meant. So I, I think we're making progress. I do. I'm very hopeful. But I also think about this. Not everyone has access to the things that we're talking about. So the lack of progress also kind of relates to the accessibility of the things that might have some good opportunities for discussion and growth. Yeah, it's so true. You know, there certainly has been growing representation of sexual and gender diversity, but it is a bit more concentrated on the the streaming networks and premium channels where you're absolutely right. Not everyone has access to them. And, you know, in terms of how things have changed, like I love the show Sex Education, right? And I don't love many sex shows because honestly, like watching sex shows usually feels like work for me. And so I try to watch shows that aren't about sex because it's like, I need a sex break. But that is one of the few shows where it's just like, I could just relax and watch it and enjoy it. And I think it started so many conversations and depicted so many aspects of sex that you just never really see shown, you know, and one was a scene where there was, you know, sex and disability, right? So it was Mm -hmm. navigating an intimate moment where one partner was in a wheelchair. And then related to that, there's also the show special on Netflix, which portrays queer disabled sexuality, which again, I've never seen on on TV before. Or if you look at a show like Sense8, right? There's all kinds of group sex that takes place on that atypical where they kind of explore autism and relationships and sexuality. Like you're seeing all of these topics starting to be explored for the first time. So there is growing representation. Certainly there's still work to do. (laughs) And, you know, nobody's getting it 100% right. Sex education, I know it has its detractors, even among people in our field, right? So you have to take the good with the bad. I would encourage people not to just like cancel everything that has one problematic element because right. you know, we can't throw out the whole thing just because there's this one aspect of it that we don't like. So we need to consider the good with the bad and always strive to do better. Yeah. And I think when we see some of the things that we don't necessarily find it to be a best practice or even factual, we using those opportunities as teachable moments 
even whomever we're teaching, whatever age, if, you know, as, a, as appropriate as we can be. It's like, so let's, let's dissect this scene, you know, like having those conversations. I remember in, in media, in terms of music, when the song WAP came out with Meg Thee Stallion and Cardi B, I remember saying, should I bring this up in class? I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to wait and see. And somehow one day it just came up and I was like, okay, I think this is the day. And we talked about it. And at that that particular day, this was still during the pandemic, the folks who showed up for class that day happened to all be female identifying. And so we talked about like, have you heard the song? How'd you hear the song? What are your perceptions of the song? How does the song make you feel? And the range of responses is like, my mom made me listen to the song. So <laughs> my mom was shocked to hear me singing the song. And it was just, it was an opportunity to talk about intergenerational stories around talking about sex, a coming to age opportunity, like where that one student was like their mom was finally looked at them as an adult. Like it was like, this is not my little girl. Like this is a woman, you know, here in the car with me <laughs> listening to these lyrics. And we need to, I need to have a different conversation because she's not a child anymore. And so yeah, it, it, they, had, they had some good perspectives. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Some people felt it was demeaning. Some people felt it was more empowering. But regardless, that whole conversation allowed us to, to respect each other's perspectives, share them, talk about the external you know, support in the community that we have, whether it's parents, grandparents, or aunties, and their socialization around female sexualities. That was a really good class. I enjoyed yeah. that class. I, I wish I could be there to have heard it. WAP is a teachable moment. I just, I love it. <laughs> and, you know, I think you're so right that we can take these moments in pop culture and media and use them as as this, this time to teach and educate and learn and consider different perspectives. I think all too often we have this tendency to just go into outrage mode because <laughs> we saw something that we didn't like. It's problematic. And I'm just going to very vocally talk about why it's so problematic and why we need to cancel it. And it's like, that's just not the perspective we need to take. Let's take Tanya's perspective and use this as a teachable moment. <laughs> and isn't that what people do to us as professionals? Like when they don't agree with teaching sexuality education, if we have that one opportunity that it feels like this has gone too far, the attempt is to cancel work, cancel us, and then you know, that just doesn't feel good, as you know, or I definitely know. <laughs> no, it does not. Now, we're running short on time, but I have just one other question for you, which is, I'm just sort of curious for your take on how big is the impact of media on our sexuality anyway? I ask this because there are some conflicting results in the research and there are wide differences in the ways that people talk about this. You know, you have some folks who say that the effects of media are small and subtle compared to other sources of information or that media is mostly a reflection of society rather than a driver of change. And on the other hand, you'll hear some people saying that media is everything and they trace this direct link between what's happening in the media with real world objectification of women and sexual assault. So how would you characterize the media's impact and influence? You know, how big is it anyway? Yeah, I feel like it's very big. Like, it's like I'm conflicted between the last two. Like I do, I don't think that if you see something in the media, you're directly going to act in that way. 
but it definitely has an influence on how we see ourselves and what we think might be right, if that makes sense. And that's why I was saying, I, I was reflecting, I remember seeing the movie Fame and I know that, you know, that's a movie and it's back in the day, but I remember my sister took me, I probably shouldn't have gone with all of her friends that, you know, like she's 10 years older than me. So I was the youngest one there, but I remember this scene where the character Leroy was auditioning for the school and he was a dancer. And when he danced, I remember Debbie Allen's character as the instructor, like they all grabbed their imaginary pearls. They were getting hot. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling warm myself. Like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I didn't know what was happening, but I think it was kind of like, oh, I realized maybe in that moment I am a sexual being, although I didn't have the language then because I could think back to that. It didn't make me go act in any way. It didn't influence who I dated. You know, like, you know, it was just an awakening uh, of sorts. And so I think just like you said, with your parents, I can see in my family, it allows, a, it's a form of socialization, but as it doesn't directly impact our behavior. But some of those stereotypes, if we're thinking about consent, it can reinforce that. Like one of my favorite shows is also, it got canceled. It was a Carmichael show. One of the best episodes was about the one of the characters, Janine, was engaged to the main character, Carmichael, and I can't even remember his first name. But at the time, her friend had came out and said that she was sexually assaulted or raped. And they were having a conversation about consent. And Loretta Devine is a hilarious comedic actress, if you didn't know. And so she's playing the mom, David Allen Grizz, the dad. And so just thinking about even in their worlds, they were talking about rape and consent. And David Allen Grimm's like, well, what's the one where you get dragged down the alley and this happens? You know, like they're trying to determine like what, which is a date rape? Is it this? But it was because society makes us think that these things look that way. And so it does have an influence in the sense of like, is this rape? Is this sexual assault? Because what we see depicted on TV makes us think something. I think it has like an undertone of influence. It shouldn't make someone, but it doesn't influence our thinking in terms of like what we perceive sometimes to be maybe right or wrong or what is maybe good or bad. Yeah. And that's the way that I talk about it in my human sexuality textbook is that it's it's one of many factors that yeah. exerts an influence on our sexuality. And it's all about the interaction between the person and their environment and everything else that's going on. So it's not this simple direct relationship, just as you said, like you see something in media and then you go out and you immediately do it. Like that's not it's not as simple as that. So the media certainly does have an influence, but it's it's all about that interaction. And I'm glad that you brought up this idea of sort of connecting media to your sexual awakening, because I recently did a poll about this on Twitter where I asked people, you know, can you think of a specific moment where you were exposed to something in the media that sort of triggered your sexual awakening? And the vast majority of people just like instantly like could come up with something. You know, I've asked my friends about this too. And I think what's really interesting about that is that the answers aren't always what you expect and they're all over the board, right? You mm -hmm. never know what's going to sort of trigger that sexuality. You know, I heard everything from, you know, watching the Muppets to, you know, seeing some nude scene in a movie to, you know, it, it's all over the place. You never know what it is that, that's going to do that. So I think that also goes back to the fact that, you know, the effect of media is, is very individualized, depends on that interaction with a bunch of different factors.
So we could talk about sex in the media forever, but we need to wrap it up. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Tanya. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. Please follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tanya and Bass. Also, my website is www.tanyabass.com. And we'll also have some new followers and engage in these conversations on a different platform. Well, thank you for that. Be sure to follow Dr. Bass because she is an amazing sex educator. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.